Well, here we are, Friday afternoon. You've made it to the final talk, BangCon for this year. Well done. Now, I've seen Instagram stories of last night's Macca's run. I heard tales at breakfast of singing in the bathrooms at the very early hours of this morning. Well, I'm not sure 2.30 is actually technically early, but anyway. I've heard of people crashing into bed at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m., some even not at all. So no doubt for some of you sitting here post-lunch with little sleep, you will easily find yourself nodding off. That would be a shame to waste this final opportunity to be encouraged and challenged from God's Word. So we have a little final talk tradition here at Ancon that I need to introduce those who have not been to Ancon before to. If at any point in this talk you find yourself fighting to keep awake, I want you to grab your book and your Bible and I want you to go and stand at the edges or at the back. It's much harder to fall asleep when you're standing up. The peop- I promise you, the people around you will not make a fuss. We always end up with quite a few people standing, listening to the last talk, which is great, because it means that we're actually paying attention to what God has to say to us in His Word. So if you realize that your body is saying, sleep, sleep, sleep is good, <laughs> you just tell your body, not yet, and you get up and you stand at the back or the sides, That will really help you not to waste this opportunity. So where have we come? No one's standing up yet. Oh, a couple are. Well done. Nice. Where have we come this week? Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. He lives and he is Lord. The resurrected firstfruits of a mighty harvest to come. In Him, we're already a new creation. We died to sin and now we live to God. And when He comes, the judge of all, He'll raise us in glory like Him to take our place in the new creation where righteousness is at home. And so we live for Him, pointing forward in word and deed to His coming kingdom by the power of His resurrection spirit within us. In this final session, then, I want us to dig a bit deeper into what it means to proclaim the resurrected Jesus to the world he came to save. So I'm on page 41. Resurrection crazy talk. Proclaiming that Jesus is alive meets all sorts of responses. Richard Dawkins, an eminent evolutionary biologist, you've heard of him probably, He's a fierce opponent of all organized religion and belief in God. And some years ago now, in an online forum for the independent newspaper in Britain, Professor Dawkins answered readers' questions. And this was one of the questions from Granville Sykes. What do you think happened to the body of Jesus? And how does that tally with the accounts of the resurrection? Dr. Dawkins' answer was this. Presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. He then continues, Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. According to Professor Dawkins, Jesus' resurrection is in the realm of fairy tales, of magic beans, giant beanstalks and geese that lay golden eggs. 
It is, in his estimation, a ridiculous notion to claim that it actually happened. He also ridicules the idea that the resurrection of Jesus could have implications for the whole of the created order, which is what we were talking about last night. So in a debate with the Christian professor John Lennox, Richard Dawkins said, We come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. Of course, just because people think something is ridiculous doesn't mean it's not true. Very learned people used to think that believing the earth was round was ridiculous. Or that it was ridiculous to believe that the earth revolved around the sun. But as we proclaim this truth that Jesus is alive, there will be those who claim it is ridiculous. Others will claim that we're making too much of the resurrection of Jesus, that actually it's irrelevant to the Christian faith. Marcus Borg is one example of someone who follows this way of thinking. You can see what he said there on your page. He said, I see the empty tomb and whatever happened to the corpse of Jesus to be ultimately irrelevant to the truth of Easter. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. My argument is not that we know the tomb was not empty or that nothing happened to his body, but simply that it doesn't matter. The truth of Easter, as I see it, is not at stake in this issue. As a Christian, I'm very comfortable not knowing whether or not the tomb was empty. Indeed, the discovery of Jesus' skeletal remains would not be a problem. It doesn't matter. My position is that experiences of the risen Christ as a continuing presence generated the claim that Jesus lives and is Lord, and that the statement God raised Jesus from the dead and the story of the empty tomb may well have been generated by those experiences. That is, Marcus Borg subscribes to the devotion theory that we looked at in the first talk. He says, our defense of the reality of Jesus' resurrection is unnecessary. It just doesn't matter whether Jesus was actually alive. It's just that they experienced Jesus as alive. That's what matters. But as we've seen, that does not stack up historically in terms of what the word resurrection meant when it was used in the first century. Nor does it stack up with what the rest of the New Testament stakes on Jesus' physical resurrection. That we too will be physically raised. The whole of the created order will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Well, David Edwards is another at the theologically liberal end of the spectrum, and he sees this talk of a general physical resurrection as a barrier to the spread of the gospel. Have a look at what he said on the top of page 42. Many people find it extremely difficult or impossible to believe that one day they will be given bodies, which although physically identical or continuous with their corpses, will be able to burst from the tomb, etc. This belief involves the idea that one day God will cancel all the laws, regularities or patterns which have made up the framework of this universe so far over about 20,000 million years. The implications are that bodies will be reassembled from whatever fragments may remain long after burial or cremation 
and will then be reanimated and released to walk around a planet which, like those bodies, will never be subject to any further decay, making everything unimaginably like our present bodies and the earth on which we walk. And unless this stupendous, all-transforming miracle is to include only a tiny fraction of the human race, there seems to be the prospect of inglorious overcrowding. Is such scepticism about the physical side of the New Testament's picture of our resurrection compatible with the full acceptance of the message that our personalities can be raised from dead by the power of God? I believe that it is. And unless it is seen to be, the message itself, the gospel, will be believed by fewer and fewer people. He thinks that unless we ditch the Christian gospel from the Christian gospel, a belief in future physical resurrection and the renewal of all things, fewer and fewer people will accept the message. In his judgment, future physical resurrection is an unbearable load for scientifically educated minds to carry. So he says, in the interest of evangelism, we ought to cut loose a commitment to a future physical resurrection. But in the face of the claims that the resurrection is ridiculous or irrelevant or even a barrier to the gospel, what we've seen this week, as we've looked at the historical evidence, as we've read the New Testament accounts, as we've explored the New Testament teaching on what Jesus' resurrection meant for him and for the world, and how it ties in with God's good plan for all of his creation, we say, no. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential. And that was actually meant to be an exclamation point in the heading there, not a question mark. It's absolutely essential. John Stott captures the biblical teaching, I think, spot on when he says, Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. So as we come to the end of our week looking at this topic, let's remind ourselves first of the centrality of resurrection to genuine Christian proclamation. Page 43. One of the ways in which we can see the centrality of the resurrection to the New Testament message is how the resurrection of Jesus becomes a key way to talk about who God is. We often identify people by what they do. Who's Rowan Kemp? Oh, he's that guy who walks around in that crazy duffel coat and beanie and he gives those crazy long talks at annual conference. Oh, yeah, him, yeah, the crazy long talks, yeah. We identify people by what they do. The same is true of God. We know God by what he has done. That's why in the Old Testament, God is often described, the one true living God is described as the maker of heaven and earth. Or the one who brought Old Testament Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's identified by what he's done. But in the New Testament, a new act of God is used to identify who he is. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Have a look at the verses on your page 
and we're going to do a little bit of an exercise just to keep you focused, right? As I read them through, I want you to underline or circle where the resurrection of Jesus has become the new identification marker for God. Now, I know also because your brains are a bit fuzzy at the end of the week, after I read out each one and you've sort of found it, circled it, underlined, I want you to check with the person next to you very quickly whether they found the bit of the verse that uses the resurrection as an identification marker. And if they didn't, you point out where it is to them, okay? Two heads are better than one at this end of the week. Okay, so here we go. From Romans 4, 17. In the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Did you see it there, right? I'll help you with the first one. The God who gives life to the dead. How is the one true living God identified? As the God who gives life to the dead. Get the idea? Let's do the next one. Romans 4.24. For us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Find it. Check with the person next to you. Did they find it? Check. Yes, they got it. Okay, good. We're going to move on. Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. If you're really struggling with this exercise, I'll give you a hint at this particular point. Look for the word who. He who tends to be in the next little bit, okay? We'll keep going. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14. Oh, no, I've missed one. one uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was easy. 2 Corinthians 4 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Who is the one true living God that we proclaim? He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That's who he is. The resurrection of Jesus is central to our understanding of who God is. He reveals himself in his words and in his deeds. And he's shown his power and his love and his plans for the whole universe by raising Jesus from the dead. It's central to our Christian proclamation. And we can see this also when we look at the proclamation and life of the first Christians recorded for us in the book of Acts. Starting there in Acts 2, which we looked at on Monday night, after Jesus' resurrection, the apostles just kept on proclaiming that God had raised Jesus, that he lives, that he's Lord, and they called people to turn to him to be saved. They relentlessly proclaimed that Jesus is alive, no matter who was the audience, to the Jews who were familiar with the promises about the Christ, they would show from the Old Testament that the Christ was meant to be raised. And then they'd point to the fact that they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Then they'd join the dots. So clearly, Jesus must be the Christ. 
You can find examples of that in their preaching in Acts. In Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 13, Acts 17. But when they were speaking with Gentiles, those who weren't from a Jewish background, reasoning like that from the Old Testament would not have made as much sense. But they were still focused on Jesus' resurrection. But their explanation to the Gentiles, who weren't familiar with those Old Testament scriptures, if Acts 10 and Acts 17 are any guide, which I think they are, their argument was more, God has raised this Jesus as Lord and Judge. And, that, and he's indicated to all people everywhere that he is Lord and Judge by raising him from the dead. And we're eyewitnesses to that fact. So the resurrection of Jesus was central in their proclamation of the gospel to everybody, to Jews and to Gentiles. But it wasn't just their words. It wasn't just their proclamation. They echoed the reality that Jesus was alive in the life they lived together as his saved people. They lived their life together as a new eschatological outpost, pointing forward in their words and in their deeds to the coming kingdom as they proclaimed and lived the truths of Jesus' kingdom. So if you've got your Bible there, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 35. Peter and John are two of the apostles. They've been, just been released from prison. They were arrested for proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, we're told. That is, God had raised Jesus as the first fruits of the mighty resurrection to come. That's what they were teaching. They were arrested and they were told by the Jewish authorities not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John then said, well, what do you think? Should we obey you or should we obey God? Because we have to speak about what we've seen and heard. So now Peter and John, they've been released from prison. They've rejoined their disciples and they're praying together. And Luke records their prayer, jumping in at verse 29 of Acts chapter 4. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person amongst them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. You can see here a beautiful picture of how they were both speaking and living the truth of the resurrection. There in verses 32 to 34, their life together as followers of the risen Jesus was intimately tied up with their acceptance of the apostles' testimony 
that Jesus was alive. They believed the apostles' testimony that Jesus lives and he's Lord. And now they sought to live that out together. In this case, by pooling their possessions so that no one was in physical need. And at the same time, they were praying for boldness so that despite the persecution they'd begun to face, they would continue to speak God's word with great boldness. And notice, God answered their prayer. Verse 31, after they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Bold proclamation, radical kingdom living, all in the power of the Spirit and because of the reality that Jesus lives and he is Lord. So we can see resurrection proclamation here is central. But on the next page, page 44, resurrection proclamation is also critical. We looked at 2 Peter 3 a few times this week in faculty time and last night. Right towards the end of 2 Peter 3, he captures very succinctly the impact that the resurrection has on how we live now. Reading there from 2 Peter 3 verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Right? So that's our hope, isn't it? That's what we're looking forward to. The new heavens and the new earth. How does that affect us in the present? Next verse, verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. We seek to be the holy people God has now made us to be as we look forward to being in that new creation. We live out our present resurrection, the reality that we are a new creation in Christ. But that's not all. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. You can't shut up our dear brother Paul about the resurrection and how, what that means, he's saying. What does it mean to remember that our Lord's patience means salvation. Bear it in mind, he says. What does that mean? It, re- it means to remember that now is the time of salvation. Now is the time for people to turn to Christ and be saved. Because when Jesus returns, it'll be too late. We're told here the only reason Jesus has not returned is that the Lord is being patient. He doesn't want any to perish and face his his wrath. He wants people to repent, turn to Jesus and live. And amazingly, under the power of God, that is what has been happening here in our midst this week. You realize the reason Jesus didn't come back last Saturday was so that people could become Christians this week. And the reason he didn't come back at lunchtime is because he's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that you might turn to Jesus and live. We don't know when he will come. We know he's ready. We're told that in the Bible. 
So it could literally be any day. It could be today. We know that day will come like a thief. That is, we won't be expecting it. And suddenly it will happen. It'll be upon us. And then there will be no more time. So there is an urgency to our life now. The Lord is being patient so that people can be saved and that patience is not indefinite. We, f- we know from the scriptures that God has set a day when Jesus will appear and judge the living and the dead. So each day is precious, urgent, because it could be today. So if you're still hesitating in deciding to follow Jesus, don't put it off. Because when he appears, it will be too late. Make the decision now. Before you leave, grab a Christian you know or a staff worker or a view group leader. Ask them to help you become a Christian today. As Peter said to the crowd in Acts chapter 2, save yourself from this world that is facing God's judgment for refusing Jesus. And if you are a Christian, Peter's word here is to keep it at the forefront of our minds, that our Lord's patience means salvation. This is the critical, the essential reality. Today is a day that God has given to see people saved. And so proclaiming the gospel of the resurrected Jesus is critical because it's good news for a death-bound world. As we talked about on Monday night, our world is held in slavery by the fear of death. It's what Hebrews 2.15 tells us. There are the occasional brave ones who fortify themselves to face death with stoicism or bravery or sometimes just foolhardiness. But people don't normally want to die, not if they could choose between a good, joyful life now and death. Why in that case would you choose death? No amount of bravado covers up the tragic grief of death. But there is actual good news for our death-bound world that doesn't think it has any hope. It's in the one who died and rose again for us. So notice what it says there on your page in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The power of death was broken there in Jesus' death because he paid the full death price that we owed in our sin. I think it would be a good topic for annual conference next year, maybe. I'm thinking justification. It's always good just to slip it in, you know, create a bit of momentum. Maybe then the executive will agree with me. Paul makes the same point as the writer to the Hebrews in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's there on your page. 
that Jesus has destroyed death and made life possible through his death and resurrection. Have a look there on your page. Paul says, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. The gospel Paul is announcing and teaching, and the gospel he's inviting Timothy to join in suffering for, is the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus, where he destroyed death and rose as the first fruits of life and immortality. There's the two sides of salvation that we talked about, a salvation from death and a salvation into life and immortality. The only hope for our death-bound world, a world held in slavery by its fear of death, a world that's tragically storing up wrath for itself on the day of wrath, is in the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus. Resurrection proclamation is central and it's critical for our world. So how do we wrap up this conference this week looking at the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus? We've done this topic at annual conference before. It was a long time ago, 2007. Some of you, I dare not think, you were like in year three or something. And some of us were still here at annual conference. Well, it wasn't here, but it was annual conference. And it was a lot smaller. But we did this same topic. We did resurrection. And let me tell you about that particular conference. I remember being up late at night on the Thursday night of annual conference. And I wasn't doing a Macca's run. And I wasn't singing in a bathroom. And I wasn't standing around a bonfire. I was trying to finish the Friday morning talk. And I was in that... It was really late, like it had got into Friday, and I was in that really late night haze. You know what? It, you know when suddenly, oh, everything becomes clear, <laughs> or maybe not. And I was asking this same question: How do I bring? How do I bring this conference on the resurrection of Jesus to a fitting conclusion? How do I finish this talk on the Friday? What am I going to do? And I don't know why I had this idea, but I decided in the early hours of the morning in that haze, I'm going to write a poem. Because, because no, in my own defense... Actually, yeah, no. <laughs> when prose, when prose runs out, song and poetry take over. I know if you're a scientist, you don't know what I just said, but <laughs> there are some here who understand. So I wrote a poem. And as I was preparing this year, I went to look for the talks I'd given 10 years ago on the resurrection. And I found the folder, manila folder there, it said Ancon 07. And there were the talks printed out. Talk one, good. Talk two, yep. Three, four, five. 
No talk six. Talk six had disappeared. Now, I know that I wrote that talk by hand. So it's not on a computer anywhere. There's no other copy of it. It's gone. What does that mean? Well, it probably means my filing system is hopeless. That's probably what it means. But maybe the Lord has taken it to glory. <laughs> or, or maybe he's banished that poem <laughs> for the good of his people. So no attempt at poetry. <laughs> freestyle, freestyle it, yeah. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians 4 because there is a wonderful section of Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians from chapter 4, 7, verse 7 through to chapter 6, verse 2. I want, I'm going to read it out for us. And instead of making lots of comments and pulling it all apart, I'm just going to read it. But I'm going to stop every now and then and give you my own heading for the next little section. You know how sometimes in the Bible they whack in headings? I mean, they're just, some, some, some person's made them up, right? But I'm just going to give you my own little heading for the next little section just to guide and step us through it. It's a wonderful passage where Paul shows us how the resurrection and the death of Jesus radically has changed his thinking. It's changed his perspective. It changed how he understands himself, and it changes now how, what he chooses to do. So it felt like a fitting way to finish a week reflecting on the glory of Jesus' resurrection. So let's have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. My, my first little heading, Gospel Canvas. We've covered many of these ideas already, Gospel Canvas. Verse 7, we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We are a gospel canvas. As followers of Jesus, one who is, he is brought from death to life, we show both the marks of his death and his mighty resurrection in our suffering and in the perseverance he empowers. Next heading, believing we speak. Believing we speak. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, 
because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Because we know and believe that God who raised Jesus will also raise us, we're emboldened to speak. We believe it, so we speak it. And we do it for the sake of others, for your benefit, he says. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people, every time someone becomes a Christian, God's grace has reached another person. He's saying, so we speak so that the grace that reaches more and more people may overflow, may cause thanksgiving to overflow to God. Because as people become Christians, we give thanks to God. They give thanks to God. Praise you, God, I'm saved. You've brought me from death to life. So as the, the images of the gospel of grace spreading out, changing life, and a flood of thanksgiving flowing up to God as more people become Christians. That's what happens when we speak. Wouldn't that be awesome to see the grace of God flow like that and overflow with thanksgiving to God? That's what happens as we speak His truth. Next heading, encouraged by our present inner resurrection. Encouraged by our present inner resurrection. Verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's life following Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, was not easy. It was, it was terribly hard. Read on into chapter 6 and he'll outline some of the things he went through. He says, outwardly we are wasting away, but you know what he says inwardly? We are being renewed day by day. And in comparison to the great eternal weight of glory that God has in store for us, these sufferings, these troubles I'm going through, they, they are light and momentary. And he's talking about heavy stuff, I would have thought, like being beaten for proclaiming Christ. He's saying, in comparison to what God has in store, even these are light and momentary. He says, we fix our eyes not on what, what is seen, not on the rubbish that's around me, not on the, the mess in my life. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. Next heading. Longing for the future. Longing for the future. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, 
We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is the reality of our present life. Often it is groaning, longing for what he's promised, for that sure hope that he secured for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, to have my life swallowed up by life. And he will do it. He's given assurance of it to you if you're a Christian person. He's he's given a very concrete assurance of it to you. And what's that? He's put his spirit in you now. That spirit is the same spirit through which he is going to resurrect your body. That spirit is a deposit, a down payment, a guarantee of that sure future. Next heading, living now to please him. Therefore, we are always confident And know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. We live to please him. That's how that shapes our life in the present, that sure future. We live now to please him. Next heading, persuading others because of a right fear of God's judgment. Persuading others because of a right fear of God's judgment. He says, verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, It is for you. He's saying there, we know what it is to fear the the Lord. We have a right and reverent fear of him who can even throw people into hell. And since we have a right fear of him, we try to persuade others. And even though he says, some people might think we're crazy by preaching this gospel. If some say we're out of our mind... We're going to keep doing it because we're doing it for God, actually, not for them, not for their judgment of us. 
But if you think we're in our right mind, if you think we're not crazy, that's because you understand that we're doing this for you. We're proclaiming Jesus to you. Next heading, persuading others because of Christ's love. Persuading others because of Christ's love. For Christ's love compels us, he says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. He's compelled not just out of concern that people might face the judgment of God. He's, com- he's compelled by Christ's love. He's convinced that Christ has died for all. And convinced of that, he seeks to persuade others. He feels compelled to share that with others so that they might receive the benefits of Christ's love through his death and resurrection. Next heading, verse 16, changed people, new creations. Changed people, new creations. He says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. Behold, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He's saying once upon a time, we looked at Jesus and regarded him in the way the world does. We thought him a loser, executed like a criminal. Though that has been transformed by us, we now see that he's been raised, he is Lord, he lives. In fact, now we don't view anyone like that. If anyone is in Christ, we know in them the new creation has arrived. It changes how we see people, because now we see what God is doing in them. Therefore, finally, God's appeal God's appeal through us be reconciled. Halfway through verse 18, he says, And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. 2017 is the time of God's favor. Every day God gives us until Christ returns is the day of salvation. Let's rejoice in the death and the mighty resurrection of Jesus and keep on proclaiming him because there is no other hope for a death-bound world. Now is the day of salvation for your family, for your friends, for you, for all those that the Lord will bring into your path in all the days that he gives you. 
Jesus is not a concept. He's alive. He lives and he is Lord. Amen.